Hallelujah. Amen. We're going to get into the Word of the Lord based on uh, the Bible reading that we've been doing, going through the Word of the Lord in the year uh, 2007. And uh, this has been a very interesting week in our Bible reading. The older I get, the closer I need the words to my eyes. Amen. But on the projector there, hopefully it will come up in a second. Uh, actually, for the text that we're going to use tonight, um, I'm using a scripture from tomorrow's reading, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. And the reason for that is um, that uh, uh, this last week we have been reading from the book of... Uh, uh, Job in the Old Testament, very, very interesting, interesting portion of Scripture. And uh, we're going to uh, uh, be talking about that in the in the Bible study today. And uh, good to see uh, Alex and Susie with us here tonight. Welcome home. Yeah, if uh, Christina was up here, I'd have her play the bridal march, but we'll take care of that later. Amen. Congratulations. Welcome home. Amen. And uh, but Second Corinthians chapter four and verse eight says, "We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed." And uh, for special emphasis, in verse 8, it says, We are perplexed, uh, but not in despair. And the Apostle Paul is talking about and their work of apostleship as they have faced persecution and spreading the message of Jesus Christ, that while they were perplexed, they did not reach the point of despair. And the title for the Bible study tonight is, To Be Spared from Despair. <laughs> To be spared from despair. And we're going to face persecution. We're going to face uh, perplexity. We're going to face doubt. Our faith is going to be challenged. But the key is not reaching the point of despair. We'll explain to you what those words that have been translated perplexed and despair mean from the original Greek so you can understand what it's saying there. And uh, the uh, story from the book of Job is a fascinating story about man's attempt to understand what's happening in his world, uh, why things seem to be going good one day and then they fall apart the next day, and the questions as to whether I'm experiencing judgment for my sin or um, whether what God is doing and, and why and whether we could put God on trial uh, about what we've had to go through and experience. And uh, basically the end result um, of uh, the book of Job is God is God and I'm not. And that's the whole point. You know, God's God and I'm not. And uh, we can't figure them out. And we can't just, uh, uh, you know, say across the board, well, this person is experiencing the judgment of God. Uh, because we see in the case of Job that uh, an absolutely righteous man and an absolutely uh, um, man of pure integrity experienced, um, experienced a lot of terrible things in his life. Uh, but it was not because of his sin, but it was because Satan had obtained permission to test and try him. So anyway, we're going to talk about being spared from uh, despair. 
and uh, page number 915, if you have your New Living Translation, it's August the 30th is where this passage comes from. Now, first of all, the Bible says in the, tomorrow's verse that the Apostle Paul said, we are perplexed, but we're not in despair. And I found out that these two Greek words uh, that, that are translated perplexed and, and display, dis, in despair come from the same word. It's the same word, but perplexed means to a degree, and, to de, and despair means this same feeling or sense to the extreme, to where it's reached the end. And uh, so perplexed means to stand in doubt, to have no way out, to be at a loss mentally, to experience doubt. But despair actually means to be utterly at a loss, completely at a loss. And so in, in terms of, of standing in doubt, which is having your faith challenged, if being perplexed means to experience doubt because of situations and your faith be challenged and shaken, that uh, you can be perplexed. You can experience times of questions and doubt and uncertainty and challenge of faith. But the, what the purpose of this Bible study tonight is to tell us how to experience that shaking of our faith and those experiences where we deal with doubt and questions without being in despair, which is to come to an utter loss of faith, to basically give up, to quit, to surrender our faith. And uh, this is an important lesson because sometimes the things that perplex us are not the works of Satan, but they may be the works of God as he is in the process of perfecting us. So despair is actually the extreme of the word perplexed in, in the ancient Greek and so the point of the message to, spare, to be spared from despair is that you can be confused, you can struggle with doubt without totally giving up. And this is where the story of Job comes in because he is one who had a lot of questions because of what happened to him, didn't understand why, and uh, was wondering why God would allow this and why this could happen. But in the process of his confusion and his struggle with doubt, he did not totally give up. He did not quit believing in God or become so angry at God that uh, he cursed God. Uh, but uh, he went through this process of trying to figure it out. Now, the story of Job uh, is, first of all, if you read in your Bible, and of course, the final few chapters are tomorrow and the next day of the book of Job. But Job was a man who was blameless, a man of complete integrity. And as you read the story and many of his own confessions, you find out that this is an absolutely awesome guy who uh, never uh, came up short in terms of generosity and caring for people and showing love to people. He uh, uh, made a covenant with his eyes that he would never look on a woman in lust. He said, if I look at my neighbor's wife in lust, I say, God, I want you to give my wife to another man. Because he felt that strongly uh, about his integrity and about being right with God. It's really Job's really a man that puts us to shame uh, in terms of how great his integrity was. And uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but Job is the most, many people believe, the most ancient book in Scripture. Uh, even more ancient than the writings of, uh, of Genesis, even though Genesis foretells uh, the history of an earlier time. Uh, Job is a very, very ancient text. Uh, but he was a blameless man, a man of complete integrity. And the Bible lets us know that he was the wealthiest person in the area that he lived in. But more than just being wealthy, he was also very influential. And he was highly respected. He was the kind of person that people looked to when they had questions 
or when people were going through tough times, they would come see Job, and he would encourage them. He would always have the right word to say, and they knew they could trust him. And, of course, many of us, as we uh, consider our own lives and people, whether in the kingdom of God or even people in the secular realm, uh, that you show tr- have tremendous respect for, whether an uh, administrator at a school or uh, a public figure or someone in the church that you just look up to as being, you know, they've got it together. They, they're right with God. They've got the right attitude on everything. This is the way Job was. And not only that, but God has shown his favor by blessing him with wonderful children, beautiful houses, and a tremendous amount of livestock, which would, was money in the bank back then. Uh, Today we don't use livestock as much as a sign of wealth, but that was the sign of wealth back then. And he was so concerned and so meticulous about being right with God that the uh, Bible says in Job that he would offer sacrifices for his children just in case any of them had sinned. And uh, he would wake up in the morning after a feast and make a different sacrifice for each of his children in case, just in case, not because they had, but just in case any of them had sinned because he was so conscious and careful uh, about being right with God. Now, the story switches to the kingdom of heaven or the courtroom of heaven. And Satan, or the accuser of the brethren, shows up in the courtroom of heaven. And God asks him, what you been up to? And he says, I've been patrolling the earth. I've been going to and fro, and I've been checking things out. And God says of Job, says, have you taken note of my servant Job, a man of great integrity, a man who blesses me and is always upright? And God's essentially bragging on his servant Job. Now, wouldn't that be awesome if uh, when when uh, Satan has an encounter with God, the accuser comes into the presence of the Lord and God says, have you noticed my servant fill in the blank? That's a person of integrity. That's a godly person. But what happens is Satan says, you know, why would he not serve you? And why would he not submit to you? Because his life is so obviously touched with your blessings. And uh, it, would make, it would make no sense for him not to commit himself to you because he sees all the evidence in the handiwork of your blessings. Look how you blessed him. You put a hedge around him. I can't bring any sickness into his family. I can't bring any despair. I can't, uh, I, I, I can't destroy his crops. I can't rob from him. He, he ought to be thankful to you. But you know what? I bet that if you would take down that hedge and give me the opportunity to persecute him, then he would curse you to your face. And so the Bible lets us know that God gave Satan, the accuser, permission to test Job. Now, here, here's the, the principle here in Scripture, and that is that God is ultimately in control of everything. And Satan could not persecute, tempt, or try Job without first receiving a permission slip from God. Uh, I remember in school, in order to go get a drink of water or go use the restroom, uh, we'd have to go get a permission slip from the teacher. And so if you're caught out in the hall, you have to give proof, hey, I'm allowed to do this. The teacher, the one in charge, gave me permission to do this. This is the way it was with Job. He could not do any of his evil deeds in Job's life, Job who was favored of God, without getting permission from the Lord. So that lets us know who's in charge ultimately, that Satan can't work his evil magic without getting permission 
from the Lord of hosts. And uh, what we see here, Satan's uh, request to be allowed to buffer and come at buffet and come against Job is similar with Peter in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31, where Jesus said to Peter, said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have all of you to sift you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So we, we get a picture here that uh, somehow whenever there's a testing and a trying of our faith, that first of all, permission is given and the hedge is lowered. And then there is uh, a, a passion in the heart of God for our survival and our success. He wants to see us to overcome and that our faith would stand the test and the trial. And so after this permission is given, Satan unleashed his terror in the life of Job. And within the same day, one after another, a messenger shows up at the household of Job. Before one is finished talking, another one shows up. And at the end of the day, there have been four people who showed up. The first one says, Job, I've got bad news. The Sabaeans have come and attacked. And many of your farmhands were killed and the animals were stolen. And as this bearer of bad report is about to leave and Job has his head in his hands as he hears the negative report, there's another knock at the door. Another messenger comes in and says, I've got bad news. There's been a fire that struck and burnt up the sheep and all of your shepherds. And while that bad bear of a bad report was leaving, another one came in and said, there were some raiders of the Chaldeans that came and they stole all of your camels and the servants that were with the camels. And at this point, Job is no doubt at his wit's end because all of his wealth in terms of the animals that he had had been taken from him by circumstances. But then finally, the final, the last straw was the final person that come in said there was a powerful wind, a whirlwind, or we would think of a tornado or a cyclone that came and struck the house where all of your kids were feasting together. And in that strike, all of your sons and your daughters were killed. And while Chaldean raiders and Sabaeans and a fire perhaps could be left up to chance, this strong wind was obviously in God's control. Whether you believe God controls everything or not, we know that the winds are controlled by God. And so Job understood that all of this was allowed or permitted or happened uh, under God's control. And Job refused to, at this point, curse God, although he fell down in grief and was overwhelmed with grief, as any of us would be, to have found out that all was lost. But in the end, he said, Naked came I into this world, naked shall I return. I came into the world as a blessing from God. I didn't have a lot of land. I didn't own camels and sheep. I didn't have clothing. I didn't have children. I didn't have any of it. And I'll return the same way that I came. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But he maintained his integrity, and he did not curse God, and he did not turn on God. So back in heaven, uh, Satan is once again the accuser in the presence of the Lord to accuse the brethren. And uh, the Lord said, see, it didn't work. Job still has maintained his integrity and his affection and his commitment and devotion to me. Satan said, yeah, but if you let me attack his health, then he will certainly curse you to your face. And so God says, okay. You can attack him. This will be another test for him. The thing is, you cannot kill him. 
And so Job was then attacked with terrible boils that covered his body and was just atrocious and, and uh, uh, they stank and they itched and they, it was just a miserable condition. And so now with all of his uh, wealth gone, his children gone, his life that was so wonderful and he was so well respected and looked up to, and now he's sitting in the dust throwing up dust in grief and taking pieces of pottery and scraping away at the boils to try to relieve the pain and the itch. So this is a miserable turn of events. This highly respected leader in the community, the most wealthy person around, beloved of his children, very close relationship with his family, held in high honor by everyone, and now it's all taken away from him. We would say just a phone call. To them it was just a visit of a messenger. That changed everything. And the good day that he was having turned around completely. And uh, he was sitting there in the ground bemoaning all that he had lost. Now, this is a bitter cake. Can we all agree to that? That's a bitter, bitter cake. But uh, the real icing on the bitter cake were his three friends who came and said, You know what? This is terrible what's happened to Job. Let's go comfort him. And so these three friends heard of the calamity, and they came to comfort him. These three friends were named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And when these three men showed up, these were men who respected Job. These were men who were his friends, similar in age. Uh, but they were the ones that kind of like Job was the influential one. He kind of always had the last word, and everybody just kind of agreed. But these were his friends, and they showed up. And when they came and they saw Job in his condition sitting on the ground, they threw dust in the air uh, as a show of grief, and they rent their garments. And then they sat down in the presence of Job and didn't say a single word for seven days uh, as a display of their grief. They said the grief that he's experiencing is too great for words. And finally, at the end of those seven days, seven days of silence, finally Job curses the day that he was born. He says, in effect, I wish that I had never been born. I wish that I had never entered into life. And then, probably the worst part of all, uh, to, to add insult to injury, to put salt on the wounds, was that the comforters began to converse with Job and reason that his experience was obviously God's judgment on his sins. They said, Job, you obviously brought this on yourself because God's a righteous God. God's in control of everything. And so you must have some sin in your life. You must have had some failures. And God is now uh, showing his judgment upon you. And so for uh, about 30 chapters there, it's kind of a poetic dialogue back and forth. And it's very telling about the condition of man and man's questions about God and many of the uh, things that are addressed by apologetics about people's concerns about God. and They went back and forth between Job and his comforters, with Job standing there and affirming his innocence before God, saying that, no, I, I did not fail the Lord. I, I've kept my life pure. And the comforters arguing that you must have overlooked something. You had to have done something wrong. You must have withheld generosity. And, and you must have mistreated somebody. You must have done something wrong. This has to be a product of God's judgment. It's so profound and so obvious. We all agreed before that God's blessings were on your life. And it was clear. And now this has to be. This has to be 
evidence of God's judgment in your life. And then Job would turn back around again and said, no, it can't be. It can't be. And so Job reaches the point where he says, I wish that I could present my case before God that he has been unfair to me. Because I've been faithful. I've, I've lived right. I haven't done anything to deserve this. And here's these other people who, who we can all see that they're not worried about pleasing God. And they're not concerned about whether or not God has, uh, is pleased with their life. And, and here it looks like there's favor in their life. And, and Job says, look at, look at my life. And he begins to talk about his complete integrity, the generosity that he had shown, and the purity that uh, was in in uh, his life. And then very interestingly, in the midst of all this discussion and Job uh, uh, kind of uh, telling where he is and how he feels, he says in uh, chapter 9, verse 32 through 35, he says, man, I wish that there was uh, that there was a mediator. He said, God's not a mortal like me. He can't relate to what I'm going through and I can't really talk in his terms. He says, I can't argue with him or take him to trial because he's not a mortal. I can't sit down and say, hey, you, you control my life. You're my boss, and you've been unfair to me. If he was a mortal, or if he said, if there were only a mediator who could bring us together. See, because he's God and I'm man, and we can't deal with this. We can't hash it out. I can't figure it out. But there is none. But if there was, then I could speak to him without fear. But I cannot do that in my own strength. Uh, But how many know that this was a cry? This was a cry from the heart of mankind for a mediator, for a deliverer, for a redeemer, somebody to make that connection between humanity and deity. And, of course, that was shown up in Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2 and 5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. Why is Jesus in this unique position to connect us with God? And he said, no man can come to the Father except through me. You can't come, come, to, come to God through Muhammad or Buddha or through any other religious individual or some leader or some guru or some man who sits up on the mountain. You only can go through Jesus Christ because he's the only one who is God and man. So he's the mediator. He's the mediator between humanity and deity. And so in all of Job's... Uh, contemplating and discussing how he doesn't understand. It doesn't make sense. He comes down to the crux of the matter, which is what has him perplexed. Everyone say perplexed. My faith is shaken. I'm perplexed. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me, God. I cannot figure it out. And he's asking all of these questions of God, wishing to put God on trial, essentially for what he has gone through. And the crux of what has him perplexed is here in, uh, let's see, Job chapter 9 and verse 32. Whoops. I don't have that one on there. Uh, Job chapter 9 and verse 32 is, uh, if you have your one-year Bible or if you want to turn here, uh, I'm sorry, Job chapter 21. Job chapter number 21, which is page 896 or August 20, the 26th of this week uh, of your Bible reading. And uh, it says, Job chapter 21, verse 7. This is the crux of the matter. This is what has Job 
perplexed. Why do the wicked prosper, growing old and powerful? They get to live to see their children grow up and settle down. The wicked, they enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are safe from every fear, and God does not punish them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows bear calves and never miscarry. They let their children frisk about like lambs. Their little ones skip and dance. They sing with tambourine and harp. They celebrate to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity. Then go down to the grave in peace. And yet they say to God, go away. We want no part of you and your ways. Who is the Almighty? And why should we obey Him? What good will it do us to pray? Job comes to this dilemma. This is the point. Job says, God, I've got to know this. I have honored you, I have served you, and I have prayed. I've been a man of prayer. And here are these people who say, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't care about no religion. And yet they seem to be blessed. They have beautiful homes. They have wonderful children. They grow old and they enjoy their children. Here, I'm going through this trial. I'm going through this difficulty. And, and what good did it do me to pray? What good does it do me to serve God? And that was the core of the perplexity. The perplexity. Remember I talked about we're going to face perplexity. We're going to be perplexed. But the idea that the apostle says you can be perplexed without being in despair. That you can face these kinds of questions. Is it worth it to pray? Is it worth it? To live for God. When I see people who aren't praying and aren't living for God, it seems like their family seems to be working better than mine. And, and, and they're enjoying life seemingly, and I'm going through trials and difficulty. The crux of his perplexity was, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the godless not suffer while I am suffering? Is obedience... Is prayer, is devotion to God of any value? Some evil people never seem to bear the consequences for what they're doing. And Job was perplexed. And at times, you may be perplexed. You may face these questions. See, the thing I like about Job is it's an extremely honest book. There's no gloss over it. There's no spin to it. You know how the, the, the politicians always try to spin what's happening. Instead of coming right out and saying, yeah, I was wrong. I did something wrong and I need to resign. <laughs> Y'all been listening to the news this week, maybe. No, it's always got to spin it. Sometimes we're guilty even in church of doing that instead of being honest. Sometimes and saying, I don't understand. I do not know. It doesn't make sense to me. Job is an extremely honest book, and it's about the musings in the hearts of a man. Sometimes we face situations where we don't know, where we don't understand, and we're perplexed. But while Job was perplexed, he never reached despair, which despair means a lapse or a complete failure of his faith. In fact, even while he was making this point that we read about, he said, these men don't even give God glory or honor for their blessings. He said, I'm never going to go there. I'm not even going to think on those lines. 
right in the middle of this questioning, his faith is still intact, even though he's perplexed and shaken and asking these questions. Though he was perplexed, he never reached the point of despair. The psalmist in Psalms chapter 73 and verse 2, the psalm of Asaph, faces this same perplexity that is a part of the human family. Psalms number 73 and 2, it says, As for me, I came so close to the edge of the cliff, I almost slipped. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. That means I was perplexed and I was almost in despair. My feet were almost slipping because I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such a painless life. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They aren't troubled like other people or plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear their pride like a jeweled necklace, and their clothing is woven of cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. Verse 13, was it for nothing that I kept my heart pure? He asked the same question that Job did. Was it to no value that I maintained my purity? Was it worth nothing that I kept myself from doing wrong, that I committed myself to the Lord? Oh, I get trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Was it worth anything that I kept my heart pure? And then in verse 17, the psalmist says, But then one day I went into your sanctuary, or into the presence of the Lord, O God, and I thought about the destiny of the wicked. The destiny or the end of the wicked. And then it changed his whole perspective. He said, I went into your sanctuary. See, what happened was he was perplexed but not in despair. Because somewhere between perplexity and despair, he stepped into the presence of God. He came into the sanctuary of the Lord, that secret place, that safe place in the presence of the Lord. That's why when you get perplexed, it's not a time to walk away from God. It's a time to draw close to Him. It's a huge mistake when your faith is challenged and shaken and you have questions and you feel like people have hurt your feelings and maybe you've been overlooked or mistreated for people to walk away from the presence of the Lord. If ever you need to get close to God, it's during that time. Because somewhere between perplexity and despair, you better have an encounter with God or your feet will slip. I went into the sanctuary. Amen. And uh, our faith is often challenged with Similar questions, and this is the concept here of a challenge of our faith. But the Bible lets us know that these challenges of our faith or tests or trials or temptations are not all a bad thing. In Romans 8:28, uh, actually 1 Peter 4:12, it says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. If you go through some tough times. Now, I know Sunday I preached. I preached strong and with passion about faith and about expecting good things from God and about uh, uh, living a life of positive expectancy. Amen. And I believe that with all my heart. But at the same time, when we go through difficulties and when we go through trials, don't think that God is judging you or that you've made an error or made a mistake because sometimes a trial is a part of your development. Amen. It's a part of God's plan. James 1 and 2 says, Dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. For joy? When trouble comes my way? For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. 
You can't grow any stronger until your faith is tested. So when you go through the difficult times, when your faith is challenged and questioned, just like Job went through, don't get upset, but let it be an opportunity for joy. So let your endurance grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be strong in character and ready for anything. See, a person who is ready for anything can be advanced. They can be promoted. See, if a business owner or a manager, a boss, is going to train somebody and somebody comes in there greenhorn, they're new, they don't, they're not ready to handle anything. You see what I'm saying? It's like somebody comes in with a, just a normal everyday question. They're like, eh, I don't know, let me call somebody. And you've seen this before, people on training, that, that you go to the restaurant and there's the uh, person that says, Hi, my name's Johnny. I'm going to be your server tonight. Can I interest in you in, in some uh, margaritas? And uh, there's the person standing right behind them. And they're the trainer. And this person is being trained. And so you ask the new recruit a question, and they often will defer to the trainer because they're not ready for everything. They're not ready for the questions. But somebody's been around a while. They know all the ins and the outs of the menu. They know what has what has dairy in it, what doesn't have dairy in it. They know all about it, and they know how to work the cash register. They can go, if, if the restaurant has a bar, they can go behind the bar and run that. They can even go take care of the cash register. They can handle it all. They can be promoted. They can become manager. In the kingdom of God, it's the same. Sometimes the tests that test our endurance and the very trials prepare us for anything, and then God can advance you. While I was praying a few minutes ago, uh, it, it, it came to me so strong that there are some great things that God has for us as a church and as leaders within the church. But God can't just hand it to us when we're not ready for everything, when we're not prepared for anything. And the only way I can get prepared is sometimes through some difficult times, through some tests and trials. Because, see, God is interested in us becoming everything that we can be. We have a church here in Pasadena. Not a whole lot of people here tonight. Pretty decent crowd between downstairs and upstairs. But a small number compared to the potential influence of this church. The potential to impact not just Pasadena, but the San Gabriel Out Valley and Southern California and California and United States states and even a worldwide impact is possible out of this church really it is it is but see we've got to be prepared for anything and the only way that can happen is god's got to take some of us on a journey that's kind of painful sometimes through tests and trials where we're shaken up some of you may not understand why you're going through what you're going through i i've i preached one time uh here about um uh, I think my message title was Destiny in Diapers. And how that sometimes Satan has more of an idea of a, what our potential is and what our destiny is than we do. And he doesn't attack us based on our immediate threat to his kingdom. He attacks us based on our eventual threat to his kingdom. And so, and so the enemy of our soul, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, wants to keep this church hemmed in wants to keep us with a small mentality and a limited amount of faith and a limited amount of influence and potential, not because he's scared of what we're doing right now so much, but he's scared of where we're going and what God's going to do through the church, amen, and through the ministries. 
of these people that God has, is bringing into our church and, and letting them be fast-tracked to discipleship and knowledge and understanding in the Word of God. And God's going to use them for great things. See, I believe this with all my heart. I believe that God's opening doors that no man can shut. And nobody opened it. Amen. No man can get the credit for opening the doors. That's what's so awesome when it's a work of God. See, if I could say, look what I did. I, I, I uh, was able to uh, make a connection to this group of people, or we, we opened a door into this community. No, you know what? God did it. And when God opens the doors, praise the Lord, it's a divine thing, and nobody can shut it when God opens it. I mean, and God's going to do great things. Praise the Lord. And so don't think it's strange when you, when you face the trial and the test, when your faith is shaken up. We'll say, why, Brother Brown? Why, how could this ever be a good thing? It's a good thing because God's taking you somewhere else. You're down here. God's got you up here. Your level of influence and uh, your, your level of effectiveness in the kingdom is right here right now. That's as far as you can go, but God's got to shake things up for you. You've got to go through some trials and some questions and, 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 and uh, uh, have to go through this little wrestling match with uh, your will and with the will of God and, and uh, finally come through in a position where you're... Uh, Job said it this way, when I come forth, I, I shall be tried like gold. Amen? When I come out of the fire, I shall be like gold tried in the fire. That means it's pure. It's been, everything's been taken out of it. It's the highest possible value, amen, through the fire. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So the question is, how do I spare despair? How can I go through these tests and trials and at the same time keep my faith intact? So how can I go through perplexity but stay out of despair? The key verse to answer this question is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a verse that all of us know very well. But I want to focus in on it for the next 10 minutes. I want to make it our center of focus in this message. And we know that God causes everything to work together. Or the King James Version says all things work together. God causes everything to work together. So everything doesn't work individually to our good, but everything works together for our good. So that means while we can't understand how one thing, independent of everything else, is working for our good, if we catch the understanding that if we realize that together, when it's put together with everything else that's happening, it's, it's like a symphony or an orchestra of things that are working together. It doesn't sound very good by itself. It doesn't make sense by itself, but together it's working for the good of, of those that love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance. It says who He did for no. How, how would God know who was going to be in the church in advance? Well, He sees the end from the beginning. You know, God, if, if you pass away someday, if the Lord tarries, you know God's already been to your funeral. Tonight, God's already been to your funeral because He knows the end from the beginning. And so through his foreknowledge, he said, this person is going to choose me. And so guess what? I choose them to become like Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ or his son, Jesus Christ, would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. Who's the brothers and sisters? That's you and me. Who's our template? Our template is Jesus Christ. That's who we're becoming like. And, uh, and so all things are working together for good to make me like Jesus. 
Everything that happens in my life is a part of the symphony. And the purpose of the symphony is to make me more like Jesus so that God can do his purpose and his will and his calling in my life. Isn't that awesome? That all things work together for good. So during the questions that I go through and the perplexity that I experience through the tests and the fiery trials, there's five quick points I want you to remember. Number one is whenever you face the question, whenever you are in perplexity, whenever you're going through the trial, point number one is your comforter, the Holy Spirit, is in your corner. (laughs) Whatever it is that I face, whatever it is that I go through, the Holy Spirit, which is God's gift to me, which is God operating in my life within me. Isn't that awesome? God is inside of us. The Holy Spirit is in our corner when we face these trials, when we go through these tests. Amen. I know when, you, when, when the boxers are out there and they're, they're boxing and they're doing their best and then they, the bell rings and it's time out between the, uh, uh, between the various rounds and they go sit in their corner. They're in their corners, their old coach, the one that's going to give them encouraging words and pour the water on them and say, you got them. Just put, keep putting the jab. Put the left jab in. Put the left jab in. It's going to open up for you. Keep doing it. It's in your corner. The Holy Spirit is in your corner when you face these tests and trials. Amen. If you, if you need a, a verse of Scripture, if you're in Romans chapter 8 from that passage that we just read, verse 27, all things work together for good. Look at verse 26. It says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our distress. The Holy Ghost is there when we face trials. When we are perplexed, the Holy Spirit helps us. For we don't even know what we ought to pray for. Man, you ever been there before? Things are going bad, and I don't even know what to ask God to do. God, I need help. I don't know what I need you to do, but I need you to do something. I need something to change. So the Holy Spirit is our help in times of distress. We don't even know what to pray for or how we should pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. This became so clear to me. Verse 27, And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, and the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. See, God's will is that none should perish, but all come to repentance. And when we're in distress, going through trials, going through difficulty, facing something in life that doesn't make sense to us, and we don't know why we're having to go through it, and we don't know what to do, and so we pray. And God prays through us. The Holy Spirit prays through us. See, this is awesome. See, somebody once said, why would Jesus have to pray if He's God? Why would Jesus have to pray if he's God? Why would the Holy Spirit have to pray if he's God? Somehow the Bible lets us know that there is in the heart of God God's will. And God, through his Spirit and through Jesus Christ, would cry out for the will of God to be done. That's why he taught his disciples, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, our Father which art in heaven. Amen? And uh, so we have the Holy Spirit in our corner. The kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 1.13, hold on to the pattern of right teaching you learned from me, and remember to live in the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. With the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Did you hear what it said? Hold on to your faith with the help of the Holy Spirit 
that lives within you. I'm thankful for the Holy Ghost because it helps me to keep my faith. When my faith is challenged, the Holy Spirit is in my corner. The Holy Spirit prays through me. And what's it praying for? It's praying for me that I will make it through. Just like Jesus had a prayer request, his prayer was, Peter, I'm praying for you that your faith fails not. When Jesus gets on inside of me, his Holy Spirit is praying for me as well, amen, that I'm going to make it. And his Holy Spirit is there to help me keep my faith. Keep my faith. Hallelujah. So when I face perplexity... When I have questions, when I'm going through it and I don't understand, and it doesn't make sense, and it hurts, and why are they not going through it? Why me? What have I done? Number one, remember the comforter is in our corner. Number two, remember that trouble won't last always. Trouble won't last always. I found this interesting. I looked in today in my studies, and the words, it came to pass, it came to pass. I put it into my uh, search engine. And in the Bible, the words, it came to pass, appear together 453 times in the King James Version. Whenever it's telling a story or referencing a narrative, it says, and it came to pass. It came to pass. What's the point, Brother Brown? The point is when something happens, it doesn't come to stay. But it comes to pass. It's not going to last forever. And I thought about the words that the Bible uses and that we use sometimes to describe what we go through. Words like storm. Storm. Everybody knows that a storm is on the move. Have you seen the pictures of the big hurricane that came through? Well, it's here at three o'clock in the morning. It's here at nine o'clock in the morning. It's here at 5 p.m. the next day. The point is the storm's on the move. The storm doesn't come to stay. The storm may stay for a while, but it's going to pass. When the Bible talks about a difficult situation and calls it a storm, here's a point. It's not coming to stay. It's coming to pass. A trial. Hey, the O.J. Simpson trial looked like it came to stay, but it finally came to pass. Trials don't last forever. Tests. I never yet have gone to a test that was eternal. I've gone to some long tests going through university and college, but there's always the end of the test. Come on now. A storm doesn't last forever. A trial doesn't last forever. A test doesn't last forever. A temptation. All of these things are temporary. None of these words indicate a permanent state of being. They all come to pass. So even though I'm perplexed and I don't understand why I'm going through or why this situation is like it is right now, trouble won't last always. Amen? It'll last for a while, but it came to pass. Hold on. It's a test. It may well improve you. Experience being the greatest teacher that there is. It may fulfill God's purpose in your life. One point of warning here is don't get trapped in the past. It's past. But this happened to me and I'm upset about it. And I can't shake loose of it. What's wrong with you? It came to pass. You decided to keep it here. You decided to dwell on it. And you let bitterness get inside of you. And it can destroy what God's purpose planned that event to accomplish in you. Let it go. I got three words for you. Let it go. 
But I was mistreated. Let it go. But I faced difficulty. Let it go. But I had a business thing blow up in my face. Let it go. Don't let it come to stay, but let it come to pass. Let it go. Amen. Don't let yesterday's troubles destroy today's attitude. So while I'm perplexed, if I don't want to go into despair, remember that trouble won't last always. Number three, remember that God's timing is God's timing is perfect. Say, the, the, the reason God's timing is perfect is because we make decisions based on what we see, which is only like about this much. This much. Can you imagine? Hey, l- let me ask you this. If you could see your life from the end to the beginning, do you think there's some decisions you made in your life you would have made different? Come on now. Like, uh, I remember when I was in junior high, they had these books called Choose Your Own Adventure. Anybody remember those? Brother Sergio, you and I are the only ones, so let me just explain this to you. Uh, What it was is you're reading along in the book, and you're like the hero of the book, and you get to a point, and and it's a high, intense point, and then what are you going to do? And it gives you three choices. If you choose A, turn to page 73. If you choose B, turn to page 26. If you choose C, turn to page 93. So you choose, you go to page 93, and you're like... Oh, you just got your head knocked off or whatever. And so you go back. Now, let's try 73. Let's see how that works out. And uh, uh, th- th- that's the way we could make our decisions if we could see our entire life. We could make them all right. But see, the deal is God sees the end from the beginning. He doesn't just see segmental parts of our life. So his timing is not based on his premonition, based on what he feels right then. But his timing is based on looking at your life like a painted tap saying this is the perfect time right here for him to experience this, to push him to the next level. See, God's timing is perfect, as they say. He's an on-time God. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. Amen. Mary and Martha said, Jesus, if you'd have showed up sooner, my brother wouldn't be dead. Jesus said, "I'm, I'm here in perfect time. Because not only is Lazarus going to live, but there's going to be a great, a great testimony that's going to blow throughout the land that wouldn't happen if I came on your timing. Galatians 6, 9 says, don't get tired of doing what's good. Don't get discouraged and give up. For we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. Keep doing good. Keep living for God. Keep coming to church. Keep treating your neighbor right. Keep paying your tithes. Keep loving the unlovable. Amen. Keep ministering to people. Keep visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Keep doing the right thing. And in due season, God will bless you in appropriate timing. Amen. And David was pursued by Saul. He's like, when, God? You you promised me the kingdom. You gave me this anointing. When's it going to happen? God's timing is perfect. Can I get an amen? So when I face despair, I know that the comforter's in my corner. Know that trouble won't last always. Know that God's timing is perfect, and when it's time for the storm to end, it will end. And then you'll walk out like the old song says and say, Where did the wind go? Who stopped the rain? I only remember whispering a name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When Jesus says, That's enough, it's enough. God says it's enough, it's enough, it's over. And God's timing is perfect. Number four, this is really cool. God's an artist, and we are his canvas. 
God is an artistic being. I received an email this week, a forward. Uh, usually I don't like forwards, and I don't think I necessarily like this one, but uh, I got to thinking about it, and I was like, wow, that fits into what I'm saying. It said, uh, when God paints, he uses all the colors, and it sent just an array of some of the most gorgeous photographs of n- settings in nature. The, the variety of colors in the fall, beautiful lakes and the various animals, and just the unbelievable, unbelievable, beautiful artistry of nature. See, God created it all. God's the one that decided that lepers would have spots. Amen? God's the one that decided tigers would have beautiful, Bengal tigers would have beautiful stripes. God's the one that said zebras are going to be odd-looking creatures. You're not going to know whether they're white with black stripes or black with white stripes. God is an artist. All you have to do is look at his creation. When he paints, he uses all the colors. And his creative works, I believe God's proud of. Because when he finished, he said, that's good. And what's God's most prized possession? What's his most uh, awesome creative work that he's the proudest of? Is it the Rocky Mountains? Is it the Badlands? Is it the Grand Canyon? Is it beautiful Crystal Lakes? Is it the Alps of Switzerland? Is it uh, the intricacy, intricacy of the created human body, the human eye, its ability to uh, uh, mirror and reflect information and give it to the human brain? Is it the beauty of a beautiful animal like a horse? No, I'm here to tell you that God's work that he is the proudest of is redeemed humanity. A person who was lost in sin... But now their life has changed. You know, I've always wondered, if you listen to me right now, I've always wondered, why in the world, anybody else wonder this? Why in the world did God set up Adam and Eve for failure? Put them in the garden. And he knows they're going to mess up. How do you know? Well, the Bible says Jesus was already crucified from the foundation of the world. The plan for redemption was already in place. Everybody got me? So he puts Adam and Eve and creates them there, and he knows they're going to fail. Why? Because he's an artist. God is an artist. And the most awesome thing that he can do is take a life that has a free will and let Satan come and try to pervert it. And then let the gospel message of Jesus Christ and his blood come in and take somebody who is bound by sin, wrapped up, taking all the potential of this human mind and wasting it, and let Jesus Christ step in. And begin to, throughout, through all the difficulty and ugliness, begin to make something beautiful. This is more valuable and awesome of a creative work that God has done than any of his creation that he has made. So redeemed mankind is the most precious creation because in order to make the mountains, all, G, all that God had to do was say the word. In order to create the animals, he said, let there be, let there be a variety of, fowl, uh, 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 of animals on the earth. But when it came to humankind, when it came to man, when it came to redeem man, he had to die on a cross to make, make us. Amen? He had to dry, die on a cross for mankind. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us a long time ago. Masterpiece. Workmanship. Amen. You guys uh, have degrees in art, and you know that uh, a masterpiece or a workmanship is something that someone creates and does their very best with. Amen. The Bible says you are God's masterpiece. Amen. You are God's masterpiece. And so He's still working on us. That's the point. He's not finished with us yet. He's still working on us. Sometimes the brush strokes are painful. 
Sometimes the chisel and the sculpting knife are a little painful because he's still working on us. And finally, I know you guys are getting ready to go, especially her, that one right there. She's ready to go. Number five, all things work together for your good. Trust God. He sees the big picture. God sees the big picture. All things work together for your good. And as I said, sometimes we try to understand individual things that are happening in our life, independent of the bigger picture. And a lot of times we focus on the bitter things, the things that are really hurtful and that really cut us deep. And we, we kind of jerk it out of the context of our life and say, why this? Why this knife? Why this pain? Why this question? Why this mistreatment? And we focus on the painful things that happen and the bitter things that happen. But the point is, the Word of God is saying here, if you don't jerk it out of context and let it rest in context with all things that are happening, one day you may understand, and it may not be till the other side, but one day you will understand that all things are working together. For your good. Now, Sister Christina, when I first learned how to sing tenor, when I was uh, about 13, if any of you know anything about music, I was used to singing melody, and all I could hear was the melody. And we're in the choir, and they're teaching us our part. And just the tenors, without anybody else, they're teaching us our part. And I'm like, this sounds crazy. Can you relate? Anybody know what I'm talking about? When you, st- this sounds dumb. This does not make sense. It does not resolve. It doesn't sound right on its own. But when you learn about music and you develop an ear for music, you realize that the harmony is not meant to be listened to isolated from the other parts. But when it's put together with the other parts, it's beautiful. It's bitter or unattractive by itself. But when it works together, melody resolves melody makes sense on its own but harmony only makes sense when it's joined to the other parts sometimes the things that are painful in our life are like the harmony and we don't understand it until we fit it into everything else that's happening amen and i have a lot more here but i want to just cut through to to the chase here and and, and wrap this up is uh uh anybody ever drank buttermilk before I, i drank it accidentally one time I poured it into my cereal, and uh, it was it was disgusting. Uh, anybody ever tried to take a spoonful of flour and eat it? Uh, don't advise it. I mean, it's not really good. I mean, it's going to get all over your face and everything. Uh, anybody ever taken accidentally put salt in your iced tea instead of sugar? I've done that. It's not advisable. It's no good. You're going to spit it out. What about this? Anybody ever brushed your teeth with baking soda? Isn't that wonderful? It may work, but man, it is nasty. I can't wait to spit it out of my mouth. And all of these things are pretty bitter when you drink them or eat them or ingest them individually. But if you put them together, put what together? Buttermilk, flour, salt, baking soda. Throw in a little bit of vegetable oil. And you can put it in the oven and you'll have buttermilk biscuits. Anybody like biscuits and gravy? My my mom makes sausage, gravy, and biscuits. She made it about every morning while we were back in Tennessee. 
I love biscuits. See, the point is things aren't intended to be understood and ingested individually. But when you put them together, they work together for our good. And when you put the things together, mix them up and put them in the oven, and they're orchestrated in the oven, they become buttermilk biscuits. Amen. So uh, we don't understand things independent or individually from everything. I'd, I'd hate to have to. I, I love cake, but I'd have to. I'd hate, I love cake. I love it. But I'd hate to have to eat it ingredient by ingredient, wouldn't you? But I like it when it's put together. And the same is true with your life. God's making something beautiful out of you. You're his workmanship. He's creating something for good works. He wants to use you to do great things. And even the bitter things in life, uh, even though you don't understand them, see, it's coming into the mix. You're like, God, why? God, what are you trying to prove? God, is it worth a living for you? Why am I facing that? Why am I experiencing See, he's putting something in the mix, amen? There's going to be something beautiful for the world to, to receive, to impact people's lives, amen, and to make a difference in people's lives. So finally, at the end of Job, the book of Job, after Job had made his request to God and all his questions to God, God shows up in the whirlwind and says, excuse me, Job. Uh, and his message was, I'm God and you're not. <laughs> Job, were you there when uh, I spoke the worlds into existence? Uh, did you? Uh, were you there when I created the intricacies of nature? Were you there when I determined when the wind would blow and the track that the lightning would fall in and that the clouds would contain the rain? Were you there and all? Job, you don't understand. You know what? I, I, my thinking is a little higher than your thinking. My ways are a little above your ways. But the end of the story was after the test and after the trial, God's infinite blessings were poured out upon Job. And because Job passed the test, there was a double portion that was waiting for him. That's what the Bible says. He got double of whatever it was that he lost. God paid him back double. Amen. God paid him back double for his trouble. Amen. And Isaiah 61 and 7 says, instead of shame and dishonor, you will inherit a double portion of prosperity. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known and honored among the nations. Everyone will realize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. Uh, I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering. And let me tell you what I'm going to give them. I, they will inherit a double portion of prosperity. Amen. Double for your trouble. All of your suffering, God will pay you back double. Amen. And see, through the suffering, God's accomplishing something. And anything I lose, God's going to give it back to me. And that doesn't take away the pain. The pain may last for years, but the pain becomes even a part of who I am that God can use to reach and minister to other people. Let's stand together. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So in my life, I will be perplexed. You will be perplexed. I haven't faced my last question. I haven't faced my last trial and test. But the point is, through the test and the trial, I can keep living for God. I can keep believing in God.